Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 15 of Against Japanese Podcast. Today's guest is David McNeil, who is a journalist and professor of media and communications at the University of Sacred Heart in Tokyo. He will tell us about militant labor unionism and state repression in the Kansai region of southwestern Japan. We specifically discuss the struggle of truck drivers who work for small to medium ready mix concrete companies and whose job is to take dry concrete, water it, and deliver the wet concrete to various construction sites managed by large construction companies. Known as Zenecon. They are organized by the Kansai Regional Ready Mix Branch, known as Kannamashibu, or Kannama, which is part of a larger national union called All Japan Construction and Transport Solidarity Union, known as Venta Union. Unlike the rest of labor unions in Japan, the Kannama uses the method. Of industrial unionism to organize all workers in the same industry into the same union, as opposed to company unionism that only organizes workers in the same company and is hence more pliant towards the bosses. Since its establishment in 1965, members of the Kanama have struggled militantly to counter the super exploitation of their labor power. And improve their substandard working conditions. The Kanama has also pursued a strategy of class alliance with their small to medium employers against large construction companies, Zenecon, by organizing them into a cooperative to minimize competition and prevent them from beating the price of wet concrete down, which would negatively affect the workers' wages. As well as the quality of the concrete and the safety of buildings in which it is used to build. However, the Kanama's militant industrial unionism and attempt at unifying their employers against Zenecon have met intense police repression and mass arrest of its members. Since 2018, 81 members of the union have been arrested on legally dubious charges. Including the union's co founder, Takekenichi, who was detained for 641 days without trial. The union's strategic alliance with the bosses also seems to have backfired as they hired Yakuza's and even neo Nazis as their mercenaries to attack the union and terrorize its members. David argues that a depression of this scale. Could not have happened spontaneously without a centralized coordination from Tokyo. We discuss who really made the decision to crack down on the Kanama and the class interests behind it. We also discuss why mainstream journalists have largely turned a blind eye to this struggle and what this indifference tells us about the state of journalism in Japan. We conclude our discussion. By talking about how the union has fought back against the repression and the ways in which we can support them, as well as what this struggle tells us about contemporary Japanese society and the world at large. If you like what you hear in this podcast, please subscribe to my Patreon or make a one time donation to my GoGet funding page. Both are linked in the show notes. Without further ado, Here is an Against Japanism interview with David McNeil. Enjoy.、Uh, hi,、uh, Kota. Thanks for having me on your podcast. My name is、uh, David McNeil. I'm a professor of media and communications at the University of Sacred Heart in Tokyo.、Uh, my previous life was as a journalist. I was a full time correspondent in Japan from、uh, roughly 2011. 11 to 2018, and before that, I was a part timer. I wrote for、uh, The Independent in the UK, which is a British newspaper,、uh, British,、uh, sorry, daily newspaper. I wrote for The Irish Times in Ireland,、uh, for The Economist for the last seven years when I was in Tokyo, 
The Economist, of course, is a British publication, and for the Chronicle of Higher Education, which is a specialist weekly publication based in Washington. Um, I think that's it. Yeah, I, I live in Tokyo. I've lived here for 22 years. Just bought a house in Mitaka, and I have three children. Okay, David.、Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. And you re- recently published、uh, an article called Union City Blues.、Mm-hmm. And it's about the All Japan Construction and Transport Solidarity Union,、mm-hmm. Kansai Regional Ready Mix Branch,、mm-hmm. uh, also known as Kanama、mm-hmm. in Japanese. Yep. Who are the Kanama and who do they represent? Can you tell us about the history of this struggle? As well as the methods and strategies of their organizing that differentiate them from other labor unions in Japan? Sure. So, as you said, Kanama, which is what everybody calls them, that's the Kansai Regional Ready Mix branch.、Uh, they're a branch of a bigger union.、Uh, the bigger union is called the All Japan Construction and Transport Solidarity Union. The, people usually call them Rentai, the Rentai Union.、Uh, they were formed in 1965. Uh, what makes Kanama sort of stick out, if you like, is that it is an industrial union. It's not a company based union. So, most trade unions in Japan tend to be company based,、uh, which means that they are rarely aggressive. They rarely aggressively confront、uh, employers. Whereas the Kanama is a sort of a, has a reputation for sort of defending its. Its、uh, members' interests very aggressively against employers across multiple employers. So, in other words, they、uh, have members in many different companies and they fight on behalf of the members in the industry. yeah And that makes them kind of quite unusual in Japan and among employers. Uh, quite notorious, you know, they have a fearsome reputation. Now, I want to be very careful here and say that they have no reputation that anybody has ever proved to me for violence or anything like that. They're just a strong trade union in the sort of UK、uh, mold, you know, the British mold, where they fight actively for their members' interests. What, what also makes them quite unusual、uh, is that the rest of Japanese trade unionism. Certainly, since the 1970s、uh, and 1980s, has become more pliant、uh, in Japan. You know, there used to be actually、um, in the 1970s, at least after the oil shock, there was a period of、uh, fairly intense union activity、uh, within structural bounds, you know, and there were a lot of strike days lost in the mid 1970s in particular to union activism. And Kanama has sort of stuck to that mid 70s mold or even to the 1960s mold where it's sort of it's militant, right? It's a militant union. It tries to actively defend its members, as I said. So, one of the things that the members told me, for example, is they have a regular activity of driving outside, driving their trucks outside the homes of、uh, construction bosses if they feel a construction boss. Uh, is not being sufficiently cooperative, or if they're being stingy about wages and so on, they'll go to the homes of construction bosses and they'll protest outside.、Uh, I looked at their videos, you can find them online. They're very lively.、Uh, they have、uh, peace slogans. They tend to have solidarity with other organizations or other issues in Japan, including, for example, the Okinawa anti base movement. Um, and one thing I was really surprised by, and as an old trade unionist myself, quite satisfied by, is that they, they seem to be international、uh, at their activities. So that's the union, that's the, the sort of character of the union.、Uh, they've had a series of strikes, and the, the one that we're going to talk about today was it started in December 2017.、Uh, it was organized by the Osaka branch of the All Japan Dock Workers Union. Uh, and what they wanted was a, a rise in pay for drivers. So, these basically the members of the union drive cement trucks all around the Kansai region. It's quite a tricky job because you have to drive wet cement, ready mix cement around building sites. There's a huge building trade, of course, in the city in Osaka and then around Kansai.、Uh, and that strike basically stopped transport runs of this wet concrete to about 1,500. Uh, sites around the, the Kinki region. So that's Kyoto, Osaka, Hyogo, Wakayama, Shiga prefectures. 
and that's the trigger for this strike. Okay, I thank you for thank you for that describing who the Kanama are. I'm wondering if you can speak about the role of cooperatives. I mean, the way the ways in which this industry is structured is quite complex. It took me a while to understand, sure. and、um, yeah, as you said, like these are truck drivers who transport fresh concrete that's mixed with water, right? Like they basically buy buy raw materials from the concrete company, and they mix it and they sell it to. To the you know the large construction companies like Zenecon, yeah, right, yeah. So they're sort of in the middle, and they're the、right. workers who work for these smaller medium companies, right? They are they, these companies, their employers sell, yeah, they they buy the concrete and they sell them to the the construction companies. That's and, right. And Kanama represents the workers, the the drivers. That's、uh, right. Uh, but they pursued a sort of strategy of cooperation with the their the small their employers, right? Sort of strategic cooperation, and、uh, actually, Kanama played a role in organizing them into cooperatives, right? So to to minimize competition. That's right. Yeah, can you talk a little about that?、Um, well, I, you've just done it. You've just done a really good job of sort of summarizing it. I mean, they what Kanama does essentially is. Delivers wet concrete, so they they get the raw materials. When you go to、uh, the Kanama、uh, Union, for example, you see that they have、um, the the sort of industry laid out, and the what they do is they take dry concrete and they、uh, water it, and they bring it in these trucks to、uh, sites all around the Kansai region.、Um, and the key sort of dynamic, if you like, in this arrangement is that. Uh, because this union does such a vital job, delivering wet concrete has to be delivered on time.、Uh, it can't be late, and they're also an intermediary between the sort of smaller companies and the Zenecon, the big contractors, as you said. So this gives them、uh, a fair amount of negotiating power. They are able to negotiate wages and conditions on behalf of their members in a way that's quite unusual for smaller companies in Japan against. The sort of big, you know, the big construction companies, especially in Osaka. So that's what, and in fact, there have been attempts to to bring the same model to Tokyo. This is what I was told.、Uh, I'm not an expert in trade unionism, but I was told by several people that there was an attempt to move this model to bring the Kanama model of of trade unionism to Tokyo against the big contractors in some way, which would give them more negotiating power. But that this was frozen out by the big contractors in Tokyo, so they're they're confined to the Kansai region, but they have quite a they carry quite a, a relatively big stick when it comes to negotiating with、uh, far bigger companies. Yes, and、uh, this is in a way the way monopoly capitalism is structured, right? And these big corporations,、uh, they have. Vertically integrated industries; they control everything from, I mean, some of these companies have connections to you know large banks, and they also control the entire process of production, but also selling as well. And I am basing this on an autobiography by one of the、uh, longtime Kanama organizers, Take Kenichi,、mm-hmm. called. Why is big capital afraid of us? Right, and he sort of goes through the process, like the, his, the entire history of the organizing and the relationship with their sort of very、really、contradictory and complex relationship with their employers,、uh, these Namakon companies, like fresh concrete companies. Yeah, like some of them are directly controlled by. Some of these big corporations, yeah,、um, but others are independent, and you know, sort of like they really at times they basically disintegrate, and the competition is too intense, and you know, they just race to the bottom in terms of price, and that affects the the workers. But they manage to sort of、uh, unify them and turn them into cooperatives, and right, 
for for people who who are trying to get a handle on this, you might not want to read Takesan's book. Takesan, by the way, was the founder of that union, wasn't he? He founded it in 1965. Uh, but um, for 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 somebody who wants a sort of an easy handle into this dispute, you could check out a very very good documentary uh, movie made about the sort of um, you know the sort of things that you're talking about. This race to the bottom. This like really hyper exploitation of workers. Uh, it's called Futsunoshikoto uh, so a normal life, please, uh, which is about a truck driver called um, Kaikura Nobukazu. And he tries to join the union because he's just super exploited. I mean, the, the movie says that he drove a cement truck for 552 hours in a single month. Um, he has two or three hours sleep a night. And what the movie shows is that um, his attempts to join the union, because he knows the union is a fighting union and will protect him, uh, anger his employers and they um, they sick the Yakuza on him. So the Yakuza, a couple of Yakuza thugs turn up and assault him, uh, demanding that he quit the union. So um, I think all of the things that you say are correct. What, what makes uh, this particular union, Kanama, uh, unusual is that it does have a kind of an understanding, an old-fashioned understanding of the dynamic between kind of capital and labor. You know, even the fact that Takesan has has written this book, which analyzes um, capitalism, right? <laughs> the workings of capitalism is kind of unusual these days, and uh, and and also understands the place of labor within the sort of you know the economic nexus that we live in. It understands that. Employers, especially the big contractors in in Japan, are very powerful, and that they can call the shots unless um, workers in this industry gather together and try to to do something about it. Right, and that's really what makes Kanama so effective as a union is that they they collectively organize uh, across different companies, and they have been very effective in trying to protect their union's interests. Mm-hmm. And uh, because of the militancy and really being an organization that is, you know, democratic and made for their members and, you know, actually taking part in class struggle against capital, mm-hmm. um, they faced quite a backlash and repression from the Japanese state. Mm-hmm. And you refer to uh, a little about the use of Yakuza as shock troops. Mm-hmm. Um, but some commentators are calling this repression against Kanama the biggest police repression against labor unions since World War II. Yeah. Can you describe the extent of this repression and why is it unprecedented? Sure. Uh, well, so since this strike that I just described started, uh, which was late, well, 2018, 81 members of the union have been arrested. Most of them on on what? So labor scholars, their uh, labor scholars have come out very strongly against what the government has done, unlike journalists. Uh, but what most labor scholars call the legal, uh, legally dubious charges, uh, in other words, the charges that these eighty one members have been arrested and just seem to be very flimsy. Uh, Seventy have been convicted of crimes. Uh, and they include things like forcible obstruction of business. So in Japanese, that would be iryoku gyomubogai. Uh, for, and they were arrested for handing out flyers. Uh, and that's what they called forcible obstruction of business. I don't know if you've ever been involved in a union quota, but I have uh, in the university sector. And handing out flyers is basically a routine union practice. It's certainly not obstruction of business. Uh, many more have been arrested on a, for a, a, a attempted extortion Kyoyo uh, Misui for checking workplaces to ensure that they're complying with labor laws. One of the most extraordinary cases involved um, one of the union members, Yoshida Osamu. Uh, he went to his employer uh, for a certificate to prove that he had a job. This is normal practice in Japan for many things. Say, for example, in his case, he was trying to enroll his child in a public nursery school. Uh, and he was arrested in 2019 for attempted coercion merely for asking his employer for proof of employment. Um, and unusually, in his case, he was a, he was acquitted uh, of that charge. Um, the head of Kan Nama, who I interviewed 
a couple of months ago, Yuji uh, Yukawa, Yukawa Yuji. He was arrested on a series of charges and held for 644 days um, while a sort of string of detectives came in and out and interrogated him. What I found quite extraordinary about that is, well, of course, 644 days is an extraordinarily long time to be detained, you know, while no charges have been brought against you. It's the kind of thing that you used to find in war, in countries at war, you know, or Northern Ireland, where I'm from, for example, uh, during the, the war there. That's the kind of thing the police, but even there, they couldn't arrest, the police couldn't arrest you for so long. Uh, and then Yukawa-san told me that while he was detained for 644 days, he had no access to his to his wife and two children. They, he couldn't see them and limited access to a lawyer. Uh, he, he's now on remand for charges on charges of forcible obstruction of business and attempted uh, extortion. So these are quite extraordinary tactics, you know. Um, the, the, several of the people I talk to uh, are, are awaiting arrest, right? So they're, they're union members. Many of their families have been arrested and they're simply waiting. So one of the people that I talked to, for example, a truck driver, she said she keeps a, a sleeping bag uh, in her hallway, in her genkan, because she thinks the police could come for her any time. And if the police arrest her, she could be kept for a very long period of time. So she's got a sleeping bag with toiletries and pajamas and so on, just in case she's taken away. Uh, and, and, you know, what I mentioned in the article is that these tactics have appeared to work. So the union was about 1,300 members at its peak, uh, and they've lost about 800 of those members since this dispute kicked off in 2018. So this is, you know, fairly serious repression. As I said, um, there are uh, academics all over Japan, many of the most prestigious universities who have come out against this, and they are the ones who have dubbed this the most serious you know, attempt at repression of a union since the Second World War, um, because it makes the Japanese constitution or protections that the constitution enshrines for union activities completely meaningless. That's what this does. Kota. Yeah, like I, I, I'm, you refer to Northern Ireland, but this is also what happens in Palestine as well. Like the Israeli authorities, they detain Palestinians without charge for, for a very long time. Sure. But it also happens inside Japan to other detainees and prisoners, uh, like migrants and refugees as well. Like they, they call it administrative detention. That's right. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's a very widespread practice in Japan. It is It is widespread. I mean, it is widespread. I've, I've covered stories over the years of people being arrested and held for very long periods of time. Uh, you know, I did a story on anti-war activists. Uh, the Tachikawa Three, for example, these were three middle-aged anti-war activists who'd been sort of campaigning against wars all around the world uh, for most of their lives. And then suddenly in 2003, 2004, after the decision by America to invade Iraq, they were arrested on really dubious legal charges. You know, they were arrested for trespassing inside a Jietai uh, Danshi, right? A Jietai is SCF. Uh, apartment block, and they were distributing flyers in the SDF uh, department uh, apartment block, and they were arrested on on uh, on charges of trespassing, which is extraordinary because they'd been doing it for so long. And you know, if the same principle were applied to say pizza people delivering pizza flyers, or all the people who deliver flyers to your door, right? They could also be arrested for. For trespassing. And what I found extraordinary about that case in particular was A, how long these people were held. You know, some of them were held for months while the police just basically intimidated them. Uh, but the other thing was how little legal recourse they had. Nobody was sort of, you know, nobody was um, effectively defending them against this ridiculous charge that they had been trespassing inside the SCF Danchi. Um, and, and what I find sort of a little bit worrying, I suppose in this particular context in Japan is you have this, on the one hand, labor law experts, as I said, from some of the most prestigious universities in Japan, Waseda, Chio, Ritsumeikan, Hokkaido, and so on, um, who are very clear in saying, well, look, you cannot have Japan's constitution enshrining, for people who don't know, Article 28 of the constitution guarantees the right of workers to organize collective action. So you cannot have that article 
in Japan and have this kind of activity at the same time, it renders that article meaningless. You know, arresting people, arresting people who are in the union because you don't like the union for these charges is really um, is really in defiance of the constitution. And even though all those academics are saying it, the media has been very timid, really, in sort of following up in this story, in my view, which is why I wrote about it, and saying, well, look, if you can defy the constitution like this so easily on this case, what else can you defy the constitution on? That's, to me, the key issue, right? Is It's not just a repression of this union. It's the fact that if the constitution can be ignored like this so effectively by the police, by the courts, by the prosecutors, then what's next? Kota. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I do uh, also have experience in union organizing uh, in my university as well back in the day. And mm-hmm. yeah, it is very normal practice to hand out flyers. And mm. uh, I even went door to door as well, like in university residences. And mm. which, by the way, I think canvassing in Japan is also illegal. Mm. Um, so it is a very uh worrying situation and should i say backward but mm-hmm. yeah constitution is supposed to supposed to govern the government mm-hmm. right make yep. laws and yeah it is a very uh, blatant practice of anti-worker uh, and anti-unionism mm-hmm. completely unchecked and but in a way this is sort of goes back to pre-war period as well this kind of repression was quite normal back in the day and uh Mm -hmm. workers in japan have struggled quite hard so in a way this is a sort of continuation of a tradition if i can say that Mm -hmm. uh on part of the japanese state supposedly japan was democratized after the war but it's still elements of fascism left in in the japanese state well i mean i certainly think that um I don't know if I'm going to call it fascism, but I do think that why this case is so important is because it represents in some ways a regression, a deep regression. So if people grew up in Japan after the war, believing that the constitution protected their rights, um, then how is it that the, uh, the authorities can so systematically and easily render a key part of the constitution which is the right of workers to organize collective action meaningless that's a really sort of worrying uh development it seems to me i mean japanese trade unionists i don't think you can compare trade unionism and the relation between uh employers and employees to the pre-war period i think there's just been a huge change uh and employers made employees i should say made great gains after the war but what makes this very frightening to me is that uh, we seem to be taking a deep step backwards with this particular uh, incident. And the lack of sort of alarm bells, if you like, around Japan is what worried me the most, When, uh, which is why I went down to Osaka to talk to these people, Kota. Yes, um, let's talk about these uh, the tactics of repression and they use sort of middleman uh, shock troops elements specifically Yakuza thugs. And recently, the employers have even hired neo-Nazis, yeah. like open uh, sympathizers of Hitler and, you know, waving mm-hmm. imperial Japanese flags, uh, Uyoku, mm-hmm. uh, as their shock troops as well. And journalist Yasuda Koichi, mm-hmm. he's a specialist on the far right and yeah. hate speech. He mm-hmm. has described this as a convergence between anti-unionism and far-right hate speech. Mm. Can you tell us about the history of this collaboration, as well sure. as the harassment and violence the union has experienced from these forces? Well, for, for people who don't know, I mean, I don't know who your listeners are, but there, there has been and there is uh, I mean, a fading tradition, I think, of collaboration between uh, employers and the Yakuza. Uh, so throughout the sort of post-war period, Yakuza have been used most famously uh, to crush uh, anti, uh, anti-American protests, for example, in 1960, but also to crush labor struggles. Yakuza thugs have been hired by employers uh, and even in some cases elements of the state to, to crush 
uh, attempts to um, uh, to fight employers. Uh, and you know, I, over the years, I've covered many stories like this. For example, uh, Giage, when Giage is a term that refers to uh, attempts to move people out of buildings. So when developers are trying to uh, toss buildings and develop or build new buildings in their spot, sometimes tenants can be a problem because they refuse to move out. And Giage uh, is a process where Yakuza thugs are used to intimidate people out of the building. So th this is not, this didn't come out of, of thin air, let's put it that way, what we're talking about now. Um, so Yakuza thugs, yes, have been, uh, I've heard this repeatedly, they've been used to harass the members of uh, Kanama. And what's, what seems to be new, again, I'm not an expert, what, what seems to be new is the use of the Zaitokai. Uh, so former members of the Zaitokai have been used also to harass union members. For people who don't know, again, the Zaitokai is the Zainichi Tokken o Yurusanai Shiminokai, right? Which is the Association of Citizens Against Special Privileges of the Zainichi. And the Zainichi are second, third, fourth generation Koreans in Japan. Uh, without going into too much detail, it's an ultra-nationalist organization. It's a far-right organization. Uh, it's anti-Korean uh, in particular. Uh, its members have gone into sort of Korean areas in Tokyo and Osaka and so on and screamed abuse at them, called them cockroaches, said they should die, said they should be sent back home. Uh, the, the leader of the Zaitokai who I've interviewed uh, is a straightforward kind of racialist and nationalist, you know, uh, an extreme nationalist. So the fact that the, the authorities appear to be using the Yakuza and the Zaitokai to break this union again, is a, is a really sort of alarming uh, development, if you like. Um, and everybody should be, uh, should be very worried about this, you know. And what I, I also talked, by the way, to a policeman off the record. So the police apparently are quite unhappy at being ordered or told or instructed or whatever it was suggested that they work with these elements, you know, because the police are supposed to lock up the Yakuza, not not work, collaborate with them. So apparently this is a source of some resentment down in Osaka, let's put it that way, that the, the Yakuza uh, have been pressed into service against the, the union. Uh, the police are not happy. And uh, yeah, the far-right fascist elements used by the employers, uh, one of uh, the prominent figures is Seto Hiroyuki, uh -huh. he, he is a uh, known neo-Nazi. He also formed an association of national socialists. Huh. <laughs> um, so yeah, he's a very, very openly uh, a Nazi. Yeah, and uh, actually, actually, Yasuda Koichi, he interviewed him. He sort of went up to him and <laughs> asked him why he's doing this. And, you know, he told him he's getting paid. Like right. he, he's not very ashamed of being uh, merc mercenaries for for the bosses. Right. So yeah, this is the reality of the their the struggle. Uh, you know, very violent repression involving some really reactionary ideologues. Yeah, it is a testament, though. You have to say as well, don't you, Kota, to the Kanama that they are considered such a threat that the authorities would wield these kind of uh, forces against them, right? You mm -hmm. know, this is quite extraordinary. And I was referring to earlier about the sort of the Kanama's attempt to organize their employers into cooperatives. And the irony is that they are the ones who are actually employing these uh, Yakuza's and Nazis. And that turned out the opposite of what they're hoping for. And there is, you know, the I mean, there is power struggle uh, contradictions and conflict inside that these cooperatives as well like some leaders are you know open to collaborating uh, yeah. with the union but others you know i think hostile elements took over and but overall this strategy seemed to have backfired yeah i think so i mean okay so obviously people would not be happy if they heard this i don't think the police are very happy even that they have been as i said but what what strikes me as sort of um really worrying again is that most people don't know about it they don't know what's going on, right? Mm -hmm. And you were also referring to earlier about violence, right? Like you, you yeah. made it clear that uh, Kanama is not a violent organization, but the media 
describes them as as if they are yakuza's. You know, they are the ones who are attacked by yakuza's, but the media is saying, you know, they're like thugs, they're union thugs. You know, kind of traditional narrative of unions being thuggish. Mm. But even uh, they describe Takesan, who wrote the biography, autobiography that I read. Mm-hmm. They call him the Don of, uh, like right. Don as in D-O-N, like mafia boss of the of the industry or the union. So the media has a really big role in aiding the repression and in some cases tailing them, right? Like actually like the, the police informed them beforehand, you know, sort of in the event of spectacular arrest or searches and right. make sure they get it, you know, they get their side of the perspective, right? So, so yeah, yeah like let's talk about the, the media's role and you're a journalist yourself. Sure. And mainstream journalists in Japan have turned a blind eye to this incident at best. Mm-hmm. And like I said, they actually like supported the police. Mm-hmm. Why is this the case? And what does their indifference tell us about the state of journalism in Japan? Well, well, I think it's a it's a bit of an indictment on journalism. I, I never like to say journalism in Japan because I think that journalism has problems everywhere. There are particular structures of the Japanese media that can make it problematic in an unique, a unique way. But basically, I mean, this has this struggle appears to have received almost no mainstream attention, mainstream national attention in the press. It seems to have been confined in the national media to an Osaka incident and therefore covered by the Osaka media. Uh, and the person that I talked to, and I, I really recommend that people read this person. Her name is, uh, Takenobu Mieko. Uh, Takenobu-san is a former journalist with the Asahi Shimbun. She's a very, very good journalist. She's the kind of journalist that I admire in the sense that she looks at the headlines and then digs beneath the headlines. She's a digger. She's an investigative journalist and she's not happy with the sort of state of things in many of these, uh, you know, many of the things she looks at. But in particular, in this particular issue, she says that the mainstream media, really, even the newspaper she used to work for, the Asahi Shimbun, they know the story, but they've shunned it. That's what she said. And uh, I'll read a quote from her. She said, it's considered a difficult story to report. Journalists who take the authorities' claims against the union at face value will be criticized by liberals but rejecting uh, those claims means going up against the police and powerful prosecutors and losing access. So, I mean, that's a, a sort of a, might seem like a strange quote, but what she means is that in Japanese journalism, uh, members, people who are reporting on crime, on the police, on police beats and so on, journalists must be member of members of press clubs and press clubs are usually attached to the police departments in if you're reporting crime in each area. So if you are a member of a press club, a journalist, a press club who writes about something that angers the police, that makes the police unhappy, as in particular, in this case, for example, if we talk, you know, the stuff that we've been talking about today, if you repeated that in an article, the police might ban you from the press club or restrict your access to the press club, which means that you cannot do your job. And that's what she means by losing access. Uh, And the result of that is it's basically self-censorship. And she said, editors have said, just let sleeping dogs lie when it comes to this issue. You know, in other words, just let it be. Right. Don't go near it. Um, And some of the other people I talked to sort of said there was a class issue involved. And this is not really distinctive to Japan. You can you can think about this in terms of America as well. If you think about the media in America, the way they have been accused of being elitist, of being out of touch with ordinary people. And so, for example, Watanabe Matoko, who's a former Asahi journalist as well, he said, well, if you think about journalists in Japan, they, for the big newspapers, they tend to come from elite universities. Uh, they tend to enter these companies uh, and stay with them for most of their working lives. So it's not really in their interest to go and investigate and dig into a trade union, uh, a troublesome trade union, a controversial trade union. And uh, also, of course, if you think about journalists, they're members of company unions, aren't they, in Japan? You know, it's the Asahi Union. It's the Yomiuri Union. 
It's the Fujisanke Union and so on. So uh, the idea of solidarity with other workers, solidarity with other unions, doesn't really travel that far, I suppose. So those are some of the reasons why the media is not covering the story. There are probably other reasons that I haven't spotted, Kota, but those seem to be the, mo- the main ones. And again, just to sort of reiterate, I think it's quite extraordinary that the media doesn't take more of an interest in this because it is such a key case, isn't it? Uh, you know, and the outcome of it is so key as well. Yeah, even newspapers like uh, Asahi, right? They're supposedly like liberal and, you know, the far right love to hate on them as if they're like some sort of communist publication or something. <laughs> but that's, that really is not the case. And they're still part of the establishment. Yeah. And it really falls on an independent journalist. Uh, like the one you mentioned, and others to <laughs> to really expose the truth, I guess. Yeah. Um, and there's a really great movie called Pochi no Kokuhaku, mm-hmm. uh, Confession of a Dog. It's about the police in Japan and oh. sort of the corruption and organizational culture of the institution, uh, but also goes into the media. And you know, they there's a scene where like they try to uh, infiltrate. Kishakurabu, but you know completely unsuccessful and they get blocked out and so they go to like a i think foreign correspondence club oh. uh, so yeah it's a really interesting movie uh i highly recommend if uh, anyone hasn't seen it yet so let's sort of dial back a little bit about the repression in which the media is complicit in so you discuss in the article that from the ways in which this anti-kanama police repression was coordinated it could not have happened spontaneously. How do you think it was coordinated and who were involved? All right. Well, well, I think this is a sort of a really important question here because uh, what the union members told me is that they were repeatedly arrested by different prefectural police forces. Um, so the leader of the Kanami Union, for example, he said that he was arrested by the Shiga and Osaka prefectural police forces, and then he would be released and then he would be arrested by another prefectural police force, yeah? And that's how he ended up being in prison or in detention for over a year and a half, because he was re-arrested on different charges. And this is a particularly sort of um, insidious form of uh, intimidation and repression. Uh, and what we, what Mieko Kawakami, what Mieko says uh, is that the Osaka prefectural police are involved, of course, but also Shiga, Kyoto, Nara, and Wakayama prefectures, all those police forces together, anywhere where the union is active, have been coordinating to to attack the union. And what several of my uh, interviewees have pointed out is that there's no FBI in Japan. There's no cross-border crime-fighting organization. So the order to coordinate all these different police forces in the Kinki region must have come from Tokyo, is what the analysts I've talked to said. And the Japan National Police Agency, which is the sort of Zenkoku, you know, the nationwide police agency in Japan, would have had to have been involved in some way. So that's the union, for example, uh, for the Kanama Union said, well, look, you don't have to believe in conspiracy theories, right? To just kind of understand that there's no way that these separate police forces all jumped into action at the same time against this union. There had to be some form of uh, top-down command or top-down direction to to have started all this. So that sort of led to speculation about who might have started all this, who might have pulled the trigger on this union. And nobody really knows that. So Watanabe-san, for example, Makoto Watanabe, the ex-Asahi journalist, He's digging into this and he might publish on something soon. He says, well, so he speculates, and I I just want to reinforce that this is speculation, but there is a wet concrete diet members caucus, for example, and Namakon Giin Renmei in Japanese. And of course, the concrete industry and the construction industry in Japan is quite powerful and it has many connections inside the diet to politicians and so on who are tied up with the industry. Uh, so they obviously would have had an interest, let's put it this way, they would have taken an interest in the strike that Kanama started. And Watanabe-san says, well, the head of the Diet Members Caucus, the Wet Concrete Diet Members Caucus, is, is Aso 
Taro, of course, the vice president of the ruling Liberal Democratic Party and a former prime minister of Japan. And he is also, of course, the former chairman of a concrete company, Aso Cement. So, you know, all of that is, is speculation. But what we do know is whatever you believe, you know, who led this or whatever, that there's no way that the police, the prosecutors, the big contractors down in Kansai sort of all came together at exactly the same time to, to crack down on this union unless there was some kind of coordination. It would have been unthinkable, let's put it that way. It had to be directed in some way, yeah? Yeah, I think it's a completely reasonable speculation. And these corporations, big capitalist organizations, were quite furious about the union and their their strike actions, and they were cutting into the profit quite a lot, as, yeah. as Takesan says in he, his uh, autobiography. And... Uh, yeah, yeah, that's I think that's completely like this is the the really the class interest that's controlling the government, the Japanese state. Yeah. Uh both sort of repressive and legislative wings of the state. Yeah. And Aso himself is also quite re- reactionary as well. Um he says things like uh Japanese people are inherently built against coronavirus or something like they um also other instances of historical revisionism as well he's quite supportive of that the history wars as well of course yeah. so you know this podcast is called against japanism and sort of this ideology of like japanese-ness and you know japan as sort of this kind of like a homogenous harmonious nation <laughs> just one people kind of thing but you know if you lift the veil mm. um, you know the people who are pumping out this kind of ideology is, is they're, they're the bourgeoisie, right? They're the ruling mm-hmm. class. They have a lot to gain from sure. uh, violently suppressing the labor unions and other marginalized communities, racialized communities as well. So mm-hmm. it's a very specific class interest at play behind mm-hmm. this kind of uh, mm-hmm. uh, rhetoric and actions as well. Mm-hmm. If you're interested, I'll send you. I write a I write a column for the Mainichi Shimbun. Uh, I'll send you a column I've just written, which is on the issue of Japan's homogeneity or alleged homogeneity, uh, which you might be interested in. I'll send mm-hmm. it up. Yeah. And but yeah, the Kanama struggle really sort of challenges that narrative, right? It's a, it's a yeah. very intense class struggle happening. Absolutely. In Japan, and people don't really know about it. So that's uh, that's a job. Of ours, right? Like people like you and me, yeah, who published uh, People's Perspective, yeah. In any case, yeah. So this very intense and violent repression. Mm-hmm. But how did the union fight back against this repression? And how can people listening to to this show support them if there are any ways possible? Sure. Well, the union has fought back, obviously legally. You know, in any way that they legally can. So they've fought in court and they've had some victories, as I said. For example, that union member who was arrested for for intimidating, you know, his employer, allegedly intimidating his employer for demanding proof of employment. Uh, he, he got off, right, which is quite unusual. I have to say, though, that the union have been really frustrated by the lack of solidarity in Japan and the lack of press coverage and so on, which is why they were so generous to me. Or one of the reasons why they were generous to me is because they they were kind of um, uh, so happy that somebody had come along to try and cover this issue. And uh, on the back of the article, I wrote an article for the Foreign Correspondence Club of Japan uh, for the magazine that they run called Number One Shimbun. And on the back of that article, we are actually going to host this Friday a press conference at the FCCJ with... Mieko uh, San, the person who wrote the book for the Exasahi journalist who wrote the book. Uh, incidentally, the title of the book is Chingin Hakai, if anybody wants to sort it out. And I think it's done pretty well. It was uh, it was released last year, last November, I think, but it's done pretty well. So Chingin Hakai is the name of the book. We're going to have a press conference on Friday with a member of the union and her discussing this issue. That's one of the ways that they have fought back. I think in terms of just your second question, which was how can people support them? The first thing that people can do is consider joining a union themselves, if you haven't already. 
unions are sort of supposedly old fashioned, but what's really interesting is if you look at the statistics for labor productivity in Japan, you'll see that uh, labor productivity uh, is quite strong in Japan still, but the share of labor productivity that workers have has gone down really sharply over the last 20 years. And that roughly coincides with the period where the, uh, unions have been more docile, more likely to sort of take the, the side of management. And of course, the other thing you've had in Japan over the last 20 years is mass casualization of the workforce. You know, you've got a lot of people now who are who will never dream of uh, Seishayan status of becoming full-time employers who are uh, on very short-term contracts, who are poorly paid and so on. All of that, to me at least, is partly a result of people not joining unions. So if you are listening, you could join a union, uh, unions make a union stronger, and that will help not only the constitution to be protected, but it will also make sure that the authorities are not able to victimize a union in the same way that they did to Kanama, because other people, other unions will come out in solidarity. You could spread the word about Kanama. You know, you could send faxes and emails to the Kanama union to cheer them on. I'm sure they would love that. You could send a fax in Japanese or English. Either one is fine. You can tweet about it if you've got a Twitter account. Just get the word out about this union. And it doesn't have to be you know, you're not, we're not talking about charity here. We're not talking about just helping them because you think that you feel sorry for them. We're talking about helping them because it makes sense. If you're on the side of, you know, labor against uh, capital, then it makes perfect sense for you to support this struggle and for you to make sure that they win, I think. And they're in the lesson for that. Yes, that's a really important point. And the unions really, uh, really were workers of their power and leverage and, you know, to sort of improve their conditions, but also historically a place uh, you get educated about class struggle and but also like a revolutionary politics. Mm-hmm. That's uh, maybe less the case in the existing unions today. But Takesan talks about in his bi- uh, autobiography that you know he you know he's a very comes from a very humble working class actually like a rural background right and he had no university education but he went to a uh, night school organized by by the union and uh the union he was part of and he yeah he read marx right he right. studied marxism and right i think that by, type of role like sort of the, the political role of the union Mm-hmm. And the political education they can do is also very important as well. Right. Yeah. Sorry, on that point, one of the reasons why I became interested in this union was because they are they appear to be very open to women. Uh, mm-hmm. Roughly at one point, ten percent of the members of the union were women, is what I was told. And I talked to two women uh, truck drivers. Uh, Mats- uh, Matsuo Seiko and Junko Tanaka. And they're uh, both like sort of truck, they've been truck drivers for years, for over two decades. And Tanaka-san in particular, she was she said basically the same as you just said now, Kota. She said, one of the reasons that it, I was attracted to this union was because it was an education. It wasn't just that they were a fighting union, that they protected my conditions and my pay. But also they taught me what a union is about, right? Like you can be in an enterprise union, in a company union, and not even realize in Japan that you're in a union because you never hear from them. But this particular union, the Kanama, they were very clear about the fact that you as an employee have the power to negotiate collectively with your employer. And if you are unhappy with your conditions, that you have the right to protest against your conditions, right? Uh, and that old idea, you know, it's a very old idea. It goes back over 100 years or more. But the idea that by being in a union, you're stronger and that that's the point of a union, right? It's not to make sure that a company functions better, right? It's not to make sure that they make more profits or whatever. It's to to fight for its members' interests. Uh, and that's what really struck me about those two women is how clear they were about the sort of role of a union, not just their own union, but the role of a union in general. Just let me read something here from the article I wrote, if you don't mind, Kota, if we could finish. Yeah, I just want to, yeah, I just want to read something about 
the the whole issue of whether it's good or bad to join a union. So at the point where unionism in Japan has come under attack and union members of the union have shrunk and so on, union membership has shrunk, uh, workers' compensation has shrunk sharply, and corporate profits have risen very sharply in Japan. So I, I quote a paper, or I quote an academic called Richard Katz, K-A-T-Z. He wrote a paper for Toyo Keizai uh, last year, and he said that from 1995 to 2017, productivity, which is GDP per work hour in Japan, grew by 30%. Yeah. So that's quite, you know, it's not world beating, but it's quite significant increase in productivity. But hourly workly worker earnings fell 1%. So at the time that productivity grew quite strongly and corporate profits grew exponentially, the compensation that workers got fell. And Kat says, this performance is particularly shocking Considered that until recently, Japan's workers got a higher share of national income than workers elsewhere. So there's probably lots of reasons why that happened. But I think a key reason is the decline of unionism in Japan, which is what makes the Kanama dispute so important. Yeah, also, I want to add what you're saying earlier about the sort of composition of the Kanama workers, but also the workers in general. You know, you mentioned that there are a lot of women in the union and this is sort of a critique that i have of uh, takesan's book is that he doesn't really pay attention to that sort of the differences mm. and sort of the the composition of the workers many workers in japan who are some of the most exploited and oppressed workers are also not japanese they're migrants mm-hmm. and you know they're very they work in heavy backward and dangerous conditions and they often come to Japan as students or even interns, right? Misleading categories they use to try to facilitate the importation of really cheap labor from the, the global south. Mm-hmm. And there are many, many instances of abuse and violence. And I was reading a pamphlet by Posse, Mm-hmm. who is a non-profit organization that works with migrant workers. Uh, they're affiliated with a union called Sogo Support Union. Yep. Uh, it's a general support union, and it's a union where anyone can join. Mm-hmm. And they yeah, represent workers in various sectors, but primarily migrant workers, and they negotiate with employers because they legally employers are uh, obliged to negotiate, collectively negotiate, with unions, yeah, they go after these like instances of abuse, like uh, confiscating passports, and in some cases, like trying to like forcibly deport the workers. They're not even border security; they're just like just some random company goons hired to to kidnap workers and send them back to their country. So, right. right. Uh, so, but it is a very dynamic where sort of the global inequality created by the imperialist capitalist world system is sort of also affecting the composition of workers in Japan domestically. Sort of the nationality is also a very important question. And, you know, also workers, some workers are considered less skilled by Japanese workers completely based on prejudice. I think there's an instance discussed in the pamphlet where some of the restaurant workers for migrants are the employers justified the pay difference because these workers are not familiar with the culinary tradition of Japan. You know, like it's very <laughs> extremely one-sided and racist right. uh, categorization. So that, you know, I think I, I really want to go after this kind of uh, nationalist ideology playing a part in class exploitation, right? Sure, sure. Mm. No, it's a, it's a fascinating subject. And, um, and I think there is a strong kind of, uh, what is it, a drive in Japan to to reinforce this idea that it is a homogenous country, um, you know, and it's a particular issue for me as well because my my kids are what we call half in Japan. They're hybrids. They're half Japanese, half. I think I think people prefer like mixed these days. Yeah, I don't like half either. We don't use that. We say hybrid though, hybrid though. But uh, whatever they are, you know, they're not. Um, they're not. Uh, they don't fit into that sort of national ideological obsession with you know with um 
with ethnic purity, if you like, which I've heard many times here. So, so I've just written about it, as I said, for the for the Mainichi, in a, and hopefully in a way that people will understand about how Japan is actually quite a a complicated, not just in the terms that you've described today, in terms of class and so on, which we both know. You know, people who cover these things, there is a class conflict here, and sometimes a very serious class conflict. But even ethnically, you know, Japan is quite a complex place. It's not monocultural. It's not monoethnical, and um, uh, I think people should know that. Mm-hmm, for sure. I want us to move to the last question. Yeah, I mean, we already talked about this in some ways, but to sum up our discussion,、mm. what is the historical significance of this struggle, the Kanama struggle, and what does it tell us about contemporary Japanese society? Well, I think that. The, in terms of what it tells us about Japan, it is a it is a fight between capital and labor. Of course, it's an old-fashioned fight between capital and labor of the type that's gone on before. But what makes it stand out is is the sense that Kanama is the last man standing. You know, it's one of the last of an old sort of school of militant trade unions, as we said during this podcast. Which still relies on the same tactics, and we, and the tactics have been quite effective. So the defeat of Kanama would be,、uh, in some ways, the defeat of militant unionism in Japan, and that would allow for the forces that are arranged against labor unions, capital in particular, you know, big industries, big companies, to have their way. Right? What would stop them? And that's obviously something that we in Japan should be worried about if we're if we're interested in sort of the politics of class and so on. But it's also a global struggle, isn't it? We've seen this all over the world. We've seen the trade unionism in most of the developed world, at least, has shrunk, declined. Although we have seen signs of a fight back in America, and at the same time as we've seen that decline, we've also seen, of course, the enrichment of a small class of people, right? You know, it's not a coincidence that we've seen this huge discrepancy in wealth and income open up across the world since the fight against trade unionism、uh, has accelerated. And I think that's what makes this a historically significant struggle in Japan, because it represents a global struggle, if you like, to rein in the forces of capital. And obviously, you know, the, the other reason why it's important is, as we've said, because nobody seems to be. Interested in it on the national level, and and that's an indictment of the、uh, the media in particular. It seems to me, right, that that、uh, for something this important, this is where the media, as the watchdog of liberal democracies, if we believe that, that's what this is where they should be jumping into. This is where they should be jumping into action and and saying, well, look, this is a really worrying development. As we said, there are protections in Japan's constitution. For trade unionism, very strong protections, Article Twenty Eight. And if we're going to dismiss the constitution, and if the authorities get to sort of just ignore it in this way, well, then what else can they do? What what else can they ignore? That's that just seems to me as why why everybody should be、uh, should be very alarmed by this development. Okay, thank you so much for that summation, David. And yeah, I think Kanama. Itself understands the importance of internationalism, as they think the、mm-hmm. international, right? So,、yeah. as the the relic says, like the workers, they are over the world, all like siblings, right? They are all comrades. Yeah, the internationalism is extremely important. Yeah, in in the in class struggle. Yeah, so thank you so much for coming on the show, David. Before you go, can you tell us about where folks can find your work? Sure. Well, I write for. I used to write for newspapers, but I don't anymore. So the main outlet for my work now is called、uh, Asia Pacific Journal, Japan Focus. Asia Pacific Journal, Japan Focus. That's where I post anything that's sort of long. Let's put it that way, including the the piece we've discussed today. I write a column for the Mainichi、uh, Shimbun, which appears in Japanese and English, which is roughly monthly. So if you Google my name, you'll find those columns. And I'm working on a book at the moment, but I'm not going to mention that because it's very, it's moving very slowly. But those are the main places where you can you can see my work. Great, thank you so much, David. Thank you, Kota. Thanks for having me on. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Against Japanism Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Now, I'd like to take this opportunity to acknowledge the generous support of my patrons, without whom I wouldn't be able to continue this project. Big shout out to Waver, Christy Lin, Shiori Nakaya, Mountain Echo 11, William Fawner, Joma, Drew Harrison, Sean S., Aiden, and Andy. Thank you all so much, and see you next time. Again.